so great to hear everyone's conversations. Um, a very warm welcome to you if I haven't had the chance to speak to you. My name's Abby and I am bringing the Bible reading today. Uh, today's Bible reading is from 1 John uh, chapter 4, verses 7 to 21. And if you don't have a Bible, raise your hand um, and the host team will get one to you. Before we begin, let me pray. Dear gracious Lord, thank you that we can look into your word and see your love for us. Um, I pray that you would please teach us from your word. Um, please show us um, who you are and who we are because of what you've done for us. I pray, um, yeah, for Matt, that you would please help him to preach faithfully um, and well from your word, Lord, um, and help us to put it into practice. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 John, chapter 4, verse 7 to 21. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love. But perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister, whom they have seen, cannot love God, whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. This is God's word. All right, well, thanks, Abby, and good morning, everyone. It's good to be here on this Sunday. Uh, my name is Matt, one of the pastors here at CPE, and uh, it is a, uh, yeah, it's an exciting day, celebration day. Uh, for me, this will be the last time that for us preachers that we'll only get to preach once on a Sunday. For me, we'll be preaching twice and doing double the work, so uh, double the pay, right, or something, something like that. Uh, look, we're going to continue on in our series on the dearest place. And this is the dearest place because God loves his church, as we've just read. And we're going to be exploring a little bit more about what it means to therefore love one another today. But actually, I was reading a passage out of a book that I've been reading uh, for this series. Uh, it was a, there's a great little interesting passage there where it's about a pastor just dreaming about his ideal perfect church. So I'm going to read it out to you for a moment, and you, might, you can close your eyes and just imagine 
this. Imagine this church for a moment. This is an excerpt from the book. It says, On days when I'm sitting in my real church and feeling frustrated by something, I sometimes daydream about my ideal church, the one where I would feel completely understood, where my perspectives would be valued, where my gifts and passions would flourish. I dream about a church I would always be proud of and never embarrassed to call home, a church so amazing that any non-Christian who visited would never want to leave. My dream church would be located in a major world city in a neighbourhood with ethnic, cultural and class diversity. It would be architecturally contemporary and minimalist, environmentally sustainable, with nods to classic church aesthetics. This dream church would be celebrated as a forward-thinking example of responsible urban design and sacred space, elegantly balancing practicality with superfluous beauty. A typical Sunday morning at my dream church would begin in the lobby with coffee and pastries, chocolate and blackberry croissants, maple bacon biscuits, lemon pistachio polenta cake from the adjacent roastery and restaurant. Following services, churchgoers would be invited to stay for a community lunch in the all-purpose room, catered by the adjacent restaurant and prominently featuring the best of the church garden seasonal produce these lunches would last for hours and hours featuring wine and laughter, bocce ball games on the lawn, tea and scones on the roof, walks around town, or naps on the couches by the fireplace. There would, of course, be a fireplace reading room, you know, with a reading room somewhere complete with a collection of single malt scotches made available for consumption at the behest of a responsible but not too stingy elder entrusted with the keys to the liquor cabinet. Most members would stay at church for large parts of the day on Sunday, along with their non-Christian friends and spiritually seeking acquaintances, as there really would be no more welcoming, relaxing, beautifully diverse and heaven-like place to be in the city. Wow. What are you, just open your eyes again, come back to reality here for a moment, just going to pull you back out of fantasy land there. What was that experience like? Was that anything, a reflection maybe of your own perception of, yeah, that sounds like a good picture of church, you know? Food, wine, friends, laughter, boche games, <laughs> whatever it is that seems to suit you. Now I started thinking a little bit more about this, and actually the author reflects on that moment himself. I started thinking about the logistics and the resourcing needed for that. I mean, just look outside of the many people involved with serving us lunch today. And I started thinking about if this was really my dream church, gee, I think I'd be more of a consumer than I would be a giver. See, in our series this term, we've been looking not so much at what dream church looks like, but what the dearest church looks like. What does a dear church that is loved by God look like? You see, it looks very different from the kind of uh, the consumeristic, the kind of every, every possible taste of mine being satisfied as I come together with church. Although hopefully, you know, as a celebration of what it means to be a community, that would be a part of what we do. In fact, we'll be celebrating something of a lunch like that today. But actually, <clears throat> the picture of church that God gives us the picture of church that God wants to see happen in his people is actually something richer and much more profound than just having all of my creature comforts satisfied. Nor is it a picture of heaven-like perfection, as though somehow, uh, because maybe we've been saved, that somehow now we can reach some idyllic, holy, perfect state here on earth. 
No, no, the picture of the church that we get in Scripture is about the God who gathers His people, gathers sinners, saves them, saves them from their selfishness, who have been shown mercy. To be a church that is growing in holiness, not in consumption. To be a church that grows together in discernment, in maturity, that worships together in all of life devotion. See, the church that is dear to God, it's not a picture of Eden-like or heaven-like perfection uh, that meets all of my tastes, but actually one that is committed to growing together in holiness and maturity and in a whole-of-life worship of God. And so that's why today we're going to be looking at the loving church, the loving church. How is a church that is not perfect, that is often broken, that is messy, How does that church come together and express the love that God has shown to us? You see, because if there is one command that appears in the New Testament, almost more than any other command, it's this, isn't it? Love one another. It's the sign of belonging to Jesus. Jesus says this, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Can you see the marker of having experienced God's love is extending that love to others? See, I actually find this really challenging, right? I mean, just think about what what are churches known for? As you kind of think about maybe big famous churches, are you thinking, oh, they're a church of love? No, I think we kind of probably are thinking, well, this, that's a church with a great building. It's a church with great preaching. Uh, maybe it's a church that, that has the best social media presence, and that's what we know about it. But what does God say? He says that the marker of his people, the marker of his church is love. This is from the passage that Abby read out for us. If you've got that in your Bibles, you can follow along with me. Verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world, so that we might live through Him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be a propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. You see, church, the foundation of biblical love is not that we were worthy. It's not that we are incredible at expressing love. The basis of biblical love is that there is a God who loves us. There's a God who cares for us. He embodies that love and he sends his son to die for us. That's how we know love. And if you have experienced that deep love from God, that should transform us, should change us, should change us into be people who are lovers of others, to love one another. You see, it's a kind of uh, love that comes from uh, seeing that Jesus gave up everything for us, his heavenly home for fragile human form, from heaven to earth. He endured shame and ridicule and torture, and then ultimately death in our place. Jesus held nothing back in his desire to pursue and redeem and heal and transform his church. 
That's how we know love. It's service and sacrifice that should flow from those who've been transformed by that love. You see, if I had to kind of summarize it, I think the love that it's described in the Bible is Christ-like love. It's a Christ-like love that is a sacrificial commitment for the good of one another, in spite of our flaws and sin. See, God doesn't love us because we're lovable. He loves us because He makes that commitment, a covenant of love, a covenant of sacrifice to send His one and only Son for us. And we embody that when we love one another, in spite of our sin, in spite of the things that rub up against each other, in spite of our flaws. See, I think that's why um, the Bible's love is so actually different to the way that our world conceives of love. Right, you just take like marriage as an example, okay? Marriage in our world, it's kind of like, uh, the wedding is like the moment where you go, okay, because we love one another, we're going to commit to each other. We're going to make this now lifelong, you know? But what actually is happening? If you think about what's actually happening, happening at a wedding, what's happening? Yeah, you know, this, today's all about, you know, flashbacks and things in the past, so, you know, I've got to get my piece in there. But what's happening in that moment, okay? What am I doing? I'm making a vow. I'm making a commitment. And that's the basis. That's actually the foundation of our marriage. That's the foundation of our love. Why do we love? Well, we love out of our commitment to one another, out of our commitment to love. You know, it's funny because when I do think about those first few years of uh, marriage, I remember it being just such a crash course in how selfish I actually am. Do you know I mean how self-absorbed I am? You know, it's so easy in those early days to kind of just be so nitpicky about things, you know? Because when you're dating, right, you just always get to see the best part of each other. You put your best foot forward. You're always trying to win someone over. You know, so you're always doing... When you're married, though, you see each other 24-7. You see each other at their worst. You see the flaws. You see all the hard... The, the bits that are hard. And, and I remember just being kind of, you know, being real nitpicky and... and and really kind of uh, keeping a bit of a tally score. You know, here's all the things that I've done for her, or here's all the things that she hasn't done for me, or hasn't met my needs in this way. That's terrible, isn't it? That's not a, that's not a picture of love. But actually, because of my commitment to Bonnie, because of my commitment in marriage, well, that means actually we've got to work on this to keep growing through it. It's the foundation from which love can grow. And I think it's like that with God and with a love that's from the Bible. You see, out of God's commitment to us, out of His love for us, we have this now, this example of what it means to love and to be sacrificial in our love to one another. See, today's sermon is actually going to be um, the most probably practical, actually, of our series. It's going to kind of cover a whole bunch of different things, because ultimately it's all about the kind of love that grows out of our commitment to one another and our commitment to being God's church together. So if you're a bit of a note-taker, um, this is our outline for today. What does it mean to be the loving church? We're going to cover these four points, okay? Because actually, the master command, I think, in all of Scripture, through the whole New Testament, is about loving one another. There's lots of commands about one, uh, loving one another all the way through Scripture, but actually, the one another commands, I think they all flow from that love one another command, 
But then there's actually about, I think there's at least 59 or 60 different commands to love one another. That is, uh, as the New Testament unfolds, it gives us a lot more flesh about what it means to love one another. And so we're going to cover uh, four of these four points. There's actually a lot more that we could potentially cover here. Uh, Lots that's actually been covered in other sermons already. But we're going to cover these four because these are really key and crucial for us, for our sense of relationship and community here, and particularly as we think about what it means to be a church that's going to be reforming new relationships in the near future, isn't it? So this is what we'll be coming. Number one, time and presence. Time and presence. Right? We're going to love each other with our time and our presence. Have a look at a few of these verses. Romans chapter 16 and 16. Greet one another with a holy kiss. James chapter 1, my dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. 1 Peter 1, 9, offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Hebrews 10, 24, let us consider how we may spur one another on to love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Right now, I know what you're thinking. You're kind of stuck in that first one, aren't you? You're stuck in that first one. Like, that's really where we're going to start today. Holy kisses, come on. Uh, actually, actually, I think it is an important point to make. Yes, okay, culturally weird. Culturally not something probably, uh, unless you're actually from one of those cultures, you know, some Middle Eastern culture and stuff where it's actually very common. Uh, and it's actually, from what I observe, a good thing. But I actually think that there may be something behind that, isn't there? There is something about, yes, the warm greeting, the smile, the the kind of warmth that we exude to each other, and yes, even the physical moment of touch. So maybe it's the holy handshake for you. Maybe it's a holy hug for you in its appropriate uh, circumstance. Now, do we have to be wise about physical touch? Yes, of course. But that doesn't mean actually that we deny, uh, that we kind of run away from it. Actually, there's something right and good about Physical touch is a sign of our love and of our affection together. Uh, I don't know if you've seen this guy around. Um, He's often found around the malls around Australia. Uh, His name is Juan Mann. Uh, He started this whole movement, the the free hugs movement. Has anyone seen one of these signs before? Yeah, for my peer and uni campuses and stuff around. This guy started, he's Australian actually. Um, And what he started was just this whole, he's just going to go around with a sign that says free hugs. Come Come and give me a hug. Um, As a result of that, there was a research team that actually went and started doing research on the effects of physical touch, of what a hug does for someone. And, surprise, surprise, there was very compelling evidence about how good physical touch is for us. Now, I think that's why partly online church can never replace physical church, can it? Yes, good substitute when you're sick and you actually need to be away. It was great during COVID when we actually, you know, out of love, needed not to kind of be close to each other. But actually, there is something helpful and good about about that physical touch. See, I think our time, just our presence, is a good building block for love. It is the smile. It's the warm welcome to show that we're glad to see each other. Yes, it's the physical presence not just of hugs or handshakes, but of being each other's homes, meeting regularly. Yes, there is a cost and an inconvenience to that, and yet that is what we're commanded to do. It's seen in how we're present by lending a listening ear to someone, that we would really engage with people and just be present as we're in conversation, not distracted by our phones or distracted by uh, other things that we'd like to be off doing. 
It's the kind of thing that goes beyond just the, the kind of, you know, functional greeting that you might have at the door here. It uh, goes beyond just the quick uh, chat that you might have after church. You see, actually, uh, something that, some tips that I've got from a really helpful book. Uh, this is called Side by Side by Ed Welch. Um, he says this. He says, kind of pulling a lot of this together, this is what he says. He says, what should we do? Move towards and greet one another. Start small, push through the awkwardness. Now, the way I like to put it is saying embrace the awkwardness. You know, there are two moments where you're just meeting someone new and you know nothing about them, and part of you would rather be kind of maybe off to chatting to that good friend of yours over there. But no, actually, what's loving is maybe just to be really there and present. And yes, it might not be the most engaging conversation maybe with someone, but you love them by just being there, by being present, listening well. And he says, have thoughtful conversations. Think about not just what people are up to, what they've been doing, but how are they feeling? What's their emotional state like? What are their fears, their worries, their doubts, their hopes, disappointments? And I think a big part of that is actually walking together and telling one another's stories, those stories of significance. You want to get to know someone, ask them a bit about their life, ask them for some stories, ask them how they met their spouse, ask them about their childhood. You know, we've been uh, in our life group been doing some of this uh, lately as well, been sharing some of our stories together. And it's always fascinating, always interesting, really helps to actually feel like your understanding of someone, right? Because there's all these things that people will reveal, especially in a space there of trust within a small group, uh, the revealing things about painful moments, sometimes painful, sometimes positive, major events that shape someone's life, that helps you understand who they are. See, some of these things may not seem significant at first, but forming that connection with someone's actually, that's the first step towards love. Now, I'm going to pick up on that last one there, seeing the good in one another, the affirmation, okay? See, step two, honour and affirm each other. Here's a few verses here. Be devoted to one another in love. Honour one another above yourselves. 1 Thessalonians, therefore encourage one another and build each other up, just as, in fact, you are doing. Romans 15, accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. James chapter 4, brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister judges them, uh, uh, or judges them, speaks against the law and judges it. Now, what is it that these four verses have in common? It's the idea that we accept each other, we honor each other, that is, we lift each other up. We have, uh, we, we don't tear each other down. On the positive end, I think it means we do. We want to see as much as possible, see the good in one another, not the bad. And we don't just see the good in one another. We might even voice it, say it, words of affirmation, one of the love languages. You know, that's what it means to encourage and to build each other up. You know, John Gottman, the uh, famous marriage researcher, uh, what he worked out was that for a positive relationship, a positive relationship needs to have five interactions that are positive to every one negative interaction, okay? Five positive interactions to one negative interaction. I reckon that says something not just about marriage, but actually about all relationships. We actually need that positive encouragement of one another in order to grow in our connection with someone. And what he says is that he says, well, 
Yes, there are, you can start by just saying thank you to people, showing your appreciation for stuff that they've done, but eventually you want to move on to actually thanking them not just for what they do for you, but for who they are, their character. Now, I know I've said this before here, but I do believe that we live in a really affection-starved culture, right? Many of us grew up in families that are really big, maybe on acts of service, perhaps, or time together, but pretty stingy when it comes to words of affirmation. And that, I think, actually makes it often quite hard for us to be able to live this out together. You know, the other day, I uh, tried to kind of put this into practice in a practical way with my son, Aiden, and I went up to him, you know, just as you're having those kind of uh, end-of-the-night chats, and I just said to him, you know, Aiden, I'm so glad that you're part of our family. I'm so glad you're part of our family. You know, he had this sort of surprised look in his face, and it was quite warming, actually, as a dad to have that moment, but uh, maybe equally was also confronting to kind of go, oh, you know what, I totally don't do this enough. I totally don't do this enough, even to my own son. See, we need that affirmation as a sign of the honour we give each other. That's what it means to lift each other up. Of course, we have the greatest example in Jesus, don't we? The King who lowered himself down to our level in order to redeem and to lift up and to free us, to bring honour back to us, the people who are sinful and chained. See, imagine if every week we sought to encourage and affirm somebody here at CPE. Imagine if that was your attitude to church. I'm going to go along here to try and lift someone up, encourage, build up. It's much easier. You notice very quickly all the things that we could potentially criticize or the things you can nitpick about each other. But what would it look like to actually look upon each other in the way that Jesus does, with eyes of love and compassion and want to build each other up? You see, Jesus actually faced this himself, even during his time on earth. The religious legalism of his time was very much about nitpicking the sin out of everything. But I think there's actually the Pharisee in all of us, the one who's tempted to look at judge and frustration and anger, stone in hand, almost, metaphorically. Instead, we can look to Jesus See his love, see his compassion, and see that's the example for us to follow. So to kind of flip this around a little bit, there's a great little quote here by God called Ray Orland. He said this, he said, the beautiful one another commands in the New Testament are famous, but it's also striking to notice the one another's that do not appear there. For example, sanctify one another, humble one another, scrutinize one another, pressure on one another, Embarrass one another, corner one another, interrupt one another, defeat one another, sacrifice one another, shame one another, marginalize one another, exclude one another, judge one another, run another, one another's lives, confess one another's sin. See, I, by flipping the negative on, it, it kind of pressed on a different part of my heart, actually, to kind of go, I'm a little bit embarrassed to say how many of these I do put into practice. And if not in voice, in thought isn't it? But when we have experienced the love of God, the love that Jesus offers us, should turn us to these verses, shouldn't it? This should be the tenderness of heart that we bring to each other in our relationships. So if we're to be church love, give of our time and our presence, give of our honour and our, uh, in our affirmation of one another, 
But you know, I reckon as we do that, we might start to discover another side to each other, and that's the broken and hurting part, sides to each other. And that takes us to our next bit, carrying each other's burdens. Galatians chapter two, uh, Galatians chapter six, sorry, carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. James chapter two, suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? See, I think actually part of actually honouring each other, affirming each other, is partly also to actually affirm the broken parts of us, the hurting parts of us. See, some of us sit here and we know we've got significant mental health struggles. Some of us have been through some really traumatic events of the past. You know, sometimes it's much easier just to shortcut past all those brokenness, all the struggles, all the things that we find difficult when we want to say to people, oh, look, it's time to move on. Get over it. There's more fish in the ocean, whatever it might be. But actually, what does it mean to, to love? Well, part of it, I think, is to actually go and walk with each other, carry each other's burdens. We enter into that experience together. Right? You might have heard there's a new term that's been going around lately. It's all about being trauma-informed, okay? Trauma-informed. The idea behind it, I think it's not a bad idea, is that actually there are people who've been through stuff that's so hard that it actually makes normal functioning in relationship really difficult. You're really easily triggered by kind of really very small, specific things. And so there's a big movement at the moment to be thinking about that even in the context of church. What does it look like to be a church that understands the, the challenges for each other? That we seek to honour those responses and those actions that might flow from how hurt and broken we are. Whether it's a mood disorder, it's a previous trauma, whatever it is. How is it that we might care for each other and love each other to make this a safe space to actually connect with others? Now that doesn't mean that there won't be time to speak into that struggle, Right? It doesn't mean that you can't be self-absorbed or selfish or sinful in the struggle with mental health or whatever. But I actually think what it means to carry that burden is to walk a mile with them, to listen, to care, to kind of find out about the things that they've been working through and to look with the eyes of compassion upon that and not judgment. You know, I remember talking to a, a guy at a previous church. It was, it was really bitter. It was, it was kind of like two years past the breakup, right? Like well past the expiry day when, you know, you automatically think someone should have moved on. But he's, what he said, I remember him recounting the story because he said, people just kept telling him, you've got to move on, you've got to move on, dude. And he tried, he honestly tried. But he said, it wasn't until someone said to him, you know what, it makes complete sense that you would be so cut up by that relationship breaking up. It wasn't until someone actually sat with him and actually acknowledged what he was feeling that he said, actually, that was the first moment someone actually said something like that. It was actually helpful, that helped him to move on, that helped him to heal hearts. See, I wonder, how is it that you're going with entering into those spaces? Because that means that community of love, of connection, of carrying burdens could also be a community of healing as well. I've been reading this book um, by a Christian psychologist uh, called Jonathan Andrews here in Brisbane. Uh, he's got, got some great little passages here in this book. I'm just going to read a little bit out for us and uh, uh, see if you can connect with some of this. Here we go. 
So it says this, when we have connected with others and the promise of a new heart is found in those around us, a new heart is created by God, uh, by a God who cares and by friends and family who love us. Only when we are surrounded by connection can that old ache of omission be healed. Only when we are surrounded by connection can the wounds of disconnection be dressed and recovery begin. When loving relationships soothe us by the active and constructive interest of compassionate attunement, a new identity comes to pass. We say, I am loved or I am lovable because we notice the way that others are responding to us. When we are near and known, accepted, understood and enveloped by those whose intent is that we flourish, hurt will begin to pass. Then when we are connected in such a way, we can foresee betrayal changing to trust and worthlessness changing to self-esteem. When the loving connection leads us to be clear of moral wrongdoing, our shame will change to honour. And when loving connection leads to new roles, our sense of alienation will change to belonging. Yeah, I think that's a beautiful picture of... I don't know. We have lost lights. <laughs> um, that's a beautiful picture. You guys can still hear me though, right? Yeah, great. Um, there's a beautiful picture of that connection though, isn't there? that actually the warmth and the connection that we can form with each other can actually heal the deepest of wounds. That's what he's saying. See, when hurting souls can find that connection and healing together, I think that's a little picture of love. That's a little picture of the kind of community that God brings together. Now, on our fourth point, forgive and reconcile each other, now, one side is our brokenness. On the other side is our sin, our, our acts of commission, if you like. You see, there's never an assumption in the Bible that a church is a paradise of perfect community. We are all sinners brought together by the blood of Christ. God forgives us at great cost to himself, but, but we need to forgive and reconcile. We need to live up. We need to follow the uh, direction and the modeling that Jesus does for us. See, what does it say here in the Bible? Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Colossians 3, bear with one another and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. Matthew 5, 23. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar first, Go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. See, church, you know, there will be some things that we will need to learn to bear with one another, right? There are some things that you do have to let go to the keeper, that you do have to kind of just, you know, learn to have some forbearance with them. Uh, maybe they are issues that, that people can't change about themselves. Maybe there's the smaller things that, you know, you don't want to be the emotional nitpicker who's kind of picking up on every single little fault of someone's. There are things that we need to bear with one another. But that said, passing over and ignoring everything is equally as problematic. Did you see that? That actually maintaining the unity, maintaining relationship and connection actually involves forgiveness, reconciliation. That is, that we actually might need to raise and deal with issues as they arise. And so I wonder, what's our culture of dealing with issues that they might lead to forgiveness and reconciliation? Because I think there's a real genuine threat here 
And I think it's common to actually most churches. See, on one hand, yes, there is strife, there is kind of mean-spirited, slander, whatever it is. But I think on the other hand, there's what I call artificial harmony. Artificial harmony. And it comes to, I don't know whether, uh, how many of you were conflict avoidant in that question before, who, who just avoids conflict. I'll, I'll probably put two hands up for that. Uh, but uh, what that does for us is that on the surface, it keeps things looking nice and looking like we're, we're still kind of united in harmony. But deep down, the issues sit there. And what do issues do when they sit there? They're great and they grind and they get mouldy and yucky and... They start growing little furry bits and... That's what happens when the issues that we have there and we leave them undealt with. Artificial harmony is as much a problem and a threat, I think, within the bonds of unity and peace because it will, it will come up. It will come up at some other point, some big explosion point in, in a um, less healthy way. So what we need is a culture of people who can be actually honest with each other that we're readily, readily willing to forgive and to mend relationship. There's a great little tool that I like. It's called the Ladder of Integrity. Now, I love that it's even called that because it's something about actually, well, part of what it means to be for me to maintain my integrity is that I can actually be honest and open with you about what's going on for me or what maybe I've noticed or an issue that I've had. Now, this is it's sort of a set of statements or questions that you can make, and you kind of just got to slowly kind of work your way through. This is just a bit of a summary of it, by the way. This is not the full thing. Uh, there you go. Uh, so the way it's, it's a way of kind of voicing and, and, and being able to raise issues in a way that's kind of uh, hopefully heading towards healing. And, and the way it works is that you've got to start by speaking from what's going on for you, right? That is, you don't start with, this is the problem with you. No, you always start with yourself and what's going on for you. So it's a series of statements that says, well, the issue on my mind is this. I'm going to own that I've got a part in this, right? So my part in this is this. But I've also got some needs and feelings about this, and I need to actually express that so you can understand that this is an issue for me. And then the second part of that is then to go and voice uh, voice something about your own values. Because most of the issues that we come across is because, well, someone has tread on us in a way that's, that's actually transgressing something that we value. And so being able to articulate that is important, right? This issue is important to me because, well, I value whatever it is. And then to kind of finish with uh, a positive way forward, it's actually saying, well, look, I'm hoping that by sharing this honestly that this will actually benefit and grow our relationship. And that I hope and look forward to being able to reconcile and to be able to kind of work this out together. See, what's involved with that? Well, it's about being assertive in, our, in, in being able to being open about things. Not aggressive, not critical, but actually saying, well, this is what's going on for me. It's about listening. It's about listening well and hearing and acknowledging what's going on. See, when we sweep things under the carpet, we actually deprive ourselves of the opportunity to repair relationship and to be able to move forward and to grow, actually, into potentially an even stronger bond of relationship. Now, church, here's a quick summary. Where have we been? We've covered these four areas and what it means to be a loving church. Now, I did want to really address the elephant in the room is that Actually, we are at a crucial moment in the life of our church, aren't we? We are parting ways, sort of, sort of. 
We are parting ways because God so loved the world. And because he so loves the world, we want to be on about reaching more and more people for Jesus' sake. See, CPE can't stay how it's always been, and that's a good thing. That is a good thing that we are a church that is growing and moving on. But as we do break into those two, uh, two congregations, will there be grief? Yes, there will be grief. And with that comes the opportunity to grow in love. Now, there is a, a principle, a number, that says that... Um, it's called Dunbar's number. Okay, I don't know if anyone's heard of it before. Uh, Dunbar basically was an anthropologist. He worked out that, generally speaking, most humans can only maintain about 150 relationships, okay? 150 people they can actually maintain any kind of relationship with. We're actually a little bit over that here at church, which is actually partly why you might feel that church feels a little bit less personal than it might have been, say, five years ago. But what's happening is that we're splitting and we're growing smaller, in a sense. That is, we're going to spend more time with a smaller group of people. And I suggest to you that that is a good thing. That when it comes to expressing love to one another that might actually be an advantage for us, that we can spend more time together. And so I want to say that as a church that is moving in that direction, I'm going to ask you to make a commitment of love to one another. That means committing to a, a gathering, a congregation. That means committing time. That means committing to greeting one another, to inviting each other into each other's homes. It means bringing that word of honour and affirmation. I think it means entering into that pain and suffering or forgiveness and reconciliation, as it may be. But you know, as we do that, we will reflect more and more of what Jesus wanted for his church. That as he loved the church, so we might love one another. I'll finish off with uh, just a... Uh, the following paragraph from, from uh, the book from John Andrews. He says, This is the beautiful vision of connection that is both ordinary and extraordinary. A vision of the way things can be if we relate to one another in the way God wants us to. It starts with eye contact and a smile. It involves changing the way we treat people who we are acquainted with but don't know well. It involves the way we interact with people we already know well, showing an interest in their lived experience and opening up to friends when they show an interest in us. It involves treating people as ends in themselves, humanizing them, connecting with them, and understanding them in such a way as to make them whole by our love and our acceptance of them. See, church, this is extraordinary love. This is supernatural love, and it's, because, and it's possible because of God's love. Now, I felt kind of well rebuked in uh, uh, working through some of this stuff and writing this sermon this morning. So I don't know about how you're feeling, but where does it all start? Well, it starts with the fact that God loved us. God loved us while we were still sinners, while we were broken, and he puts the pieces back together so that we could be a people now who express that love to one another. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, it's with eyes looking upwards that we can gaze upon the love that you have shown us in Christ. Father, you know that we were not lovable, that we were sinners, that we were broken in all our own ways. 
Yet, Father, you still sent your son to die for us. And, Father, from that commitment, we can know love, that we can know you as the God of love. And, Father, we ask that you would be in us, that you would help us to fulfill what it means to, to, to love one another. And particularly, Father, as we make these, move through these transition moments as a church, might you grow us in our conviction to spend time and be present with each other, to enter into our brokenness, to forgive and reconcile, that we may reflect more and more of the love that you have shown us in Christ. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, church, hey, why don't you take a moment just to reflect, and uh, you can fill out a Connect card as well. If you're new, let us know you've been here.